Kent Blackmore is a magic historian and the author of Levant, His Life, No Illusion. Hello, Kent. Good morning, Trevor. How are you? I'm well. Kent, firstly, was the time that the Levant family were operating a really good time for music around like the 20s and 30s and 40s? Uh, for magic in the uh, 20s, it was a wonderful time. It was actually the, the golden age of magic across the world. Certainly in Australia, uh, variety theatre was booming. Um, but uh, Le- Levant, uh, Les Levant, the, the father, uh, unfortunately was the last of his uh, kind in that uh, style of big touring show because by the 1950s uh, movie theatres had taken over and uh, everything was dying off and so he lived right at the end of the boom period. When you talk about the, we'll come back to his early career, when you talk about those mm. um, big boom and, and the big acts, what do you mean by that? They were, um, for, for instance, in Australia, it was like the Tivoli Theatre where there were vaudeville or what we call variety shows with act after act and there was so much work available for magicians. But worldwide, magicians would uh, literally traipse across the world with tens of tonnes of equipment, you know, big boxes and um, lions in some cases, and uh, they could make a, a great career out of travelling right around the world or even just staying at home with a, with a huge show. And not everybody did that, uh, but there was so much work available. It was a good time for them. And the Levant family did that? Uh, they did. Their big time was um, from the 1930s up to the, the break of war. Uh, but yes, they certainly travelled uh, all across uh, the uh, Asian uh, regions and up as far as uh, the border of Russia and uh, toured around for many years, uh, m- maybe not with such big props, but uh, yeah. When, what, so what sort of a show did they have around that time? Um, by the time they got to England, uh, Les Levant uh, was still doing a smaller size show and his show was mainly a review where he would have a lot of variety acts uh, um, which he would introduce as well as the, the magic. But by 1937, he had built up and bought enough props to put on his big show, which he called House Tricks and uh, that was in uh, London, and he was highly successful with that show for uh, years until he was forced to come home when the uh, when the war broke out. Ken, what type of magic were they doing at this time? Was escapology really big and significant? It was. Um, Les had seen Houdini when he came out in 1910 to Australia, and uh, Les saw him perform a straitjacket escape at the Melbourne Opera House, and that inspired him to take on doing um, an escape, which he did for, for many years with his straitjacket. But he also learned a lot of what we call rope ties, which are you know being tied up with ropes and then escaping. And he could use those both as an, an escape act and also as an anti-spiritualism uh, expose, because at that time spiritualism was quite a big thing and magicians would go out and perform magic to show that it wasn't all the the, the ghosts uh, but yes les would um, do quite a bit of escapology in his act and uh, it was important then they traveled as a family was it quite literally a family show as well 
Absolutely. Um, I tend to think of it rather like a circus family where if you are born into the family or you marry into the family, that's it, you're part of it. And um, young Esme, Les and Gladys's daughter, didn't really get much of a say in whether or not she wanted to travel around. She was literally born into the family and would sit in the, uh, the bassinet uh, side stage while the show was going on. And so she knew no other life from earliest childhood. Um, but the, you know, it was a, it was a good family. I've, I've never heard anything to say that they didn't uh, have a, a good loving relationship. But at the same time, Esme was, uh, you know, given this job and that was, <laughs> that was what she did. Did she participate in the show early in life? She did right from, um, probably about the age of five, I think they introduced her as young Esme Ray, uh, Ray being her middle name. And she used to do all sorts of acts as she grew up and learned how to perform. She would do things like the, lots of the old style variety routines like uh, sand painting and doing uh, pictures made out of uh, pieces of rag cloth. Um, they used her in a, um, a mind reading routine where she was would pose as the the mystic um, child mind reader, and in later years she got involved in all sorts of things, playing violin. Uh, she did a, a superpower memory routine. She had a puppet routine where she would appear as a as a marionette. So she she learned to do absolutely everything in the show, as well as assisting her father. Did that help her to be able to gain experience in magic as well, just because the performance aspect would have been so significant? Yes, definitely. Um, she was deeply involved with magic, not only with her, her family's show, but because Les Levant was such a sociable person, she was she probably spent most of her life in England uh, being hauled around to uh, magic clubs and magic conventions and meeting up with other magicians. And um, she had plenty of talent of her own, uh, no doubt, though, that um, she learned from others um, how to put magic into uh, her own act. Well, then, and, uh, sorry, go on. Just assisting her father, she was she was the lead assistant in the show, so she would have been responsible for a lot of the setting up, as well as the performance of the show. So she knew everything backstage. Did she go on to become a magician of her own right? She did. It was it was a case that um, by the end of the fifties when variety theatre, particularly in England, was declining at a very fast rate because the, the movies had taken over. Uh, Les was, at that stage, getting to be older and possibly thinking of retirement, and um, Esme was champing at the bit because after all those years of travelling since the 19, uh, 1920s, she was uh, pretty much over the, um, the, the travelling aspect of it. And so she wanted to branch out on her own as a solo magician. And so she developed basically an act with uh, a series of st uh, standard uh, magic that um, suited her and uh, went off doing cabaret magic all over Europe. And she was highly successful. If you can name a city in Europe, uh, she probably appeared in one of the, the best cabarets in town. And is it one of those things where she and also, to to a degree, her father were possibly better known overseas than within Australia? 
certainly during those years that was the case because when Les was forced to come home, uh, in, which he did in 1941 because of the outbreak of war, uh, the newspapers here called him a British magician and it was typical of the Australian um, psyche at that time that you really had to go overseas to make your name and then come back and be heralded as uh, somebody from, from overseas. But in the later years, uh, because he lived m much of his life in Australia, uh, he was definitely identified as uh, the great Australian magician. For Esme? Esme, um, more so in Europe, I think. Um, she didn't perform so much around Australia. Most of her performing career stayed over in Europe until she was forced into retirement, and then she came home. Were there many women working as magicians at that time? Because especially around that time, there's always an association that women were acting as assistants for males who were magicians. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is changing quite a bit today. There are yeah, many, many more magicians, female magicians there. But the percentage wise, of course, it is still a, a man's uh, game in, in terms of just the percentages. But yes, there, there were quite a number of um, well-known and quite famous uh, female magicians um, out there performing. Uh, the, the great Alexander Herman, uh, who is the, the face of magic, if you think of a magician with the, the big twirly moustache and the, the goatee beard. <laughs> yes. Well, that was Alexander Herman. Well, his wife uh, was uh, a famous magician in her own right. And uh, so there were plenty of female magicians working. But in Esme's time doing that cabaret, she was a bit of a standout, and I think she was pretty much the leader of the pack there. She was recognised as very much a classy and talented performer and uh, she really didn't owe anything to anybody else. Certainly she was known as Les Levant's daughter, but she was out there by herself with a very classy act and uh, just, you know, her own person. Well, did she do escapology as well? She did. I would sort of think probably reluctantly um, be, because Les, of course, was the patriarch of the family and, you know, you, you probably did what you're told. When he started thinking of handing over his magic act to Esme, his original thinking was to turn her into an escapologist. And so he taught her tricks like um, having your thumbs tied together and then being able to pass metal hoops over your tight hands so they ended up on, on your arm, or doing escapes such as being shackled up with handcuffs and chains and then jumping um, off a, um, a swimming pool board into the water and then escaping. And I, as I say, I think she probably did that reluctantly, but she certainly did take that up for a while. Um, Max joins us. Hello, Max. Good morning, Trevor, and your guest. I saw, hi, Max. Uh, hi. I saw the great Levant in 1957. Oh. I took my girlfriend to the performance in Hobart's Theatre Royal. I say my mm. girlfriend. She later became my wife. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, look, he was... I've never forgotten him. He was absolutely brilliant. And uh, they had the chief of police there, as known as police, and... Uh, they, he inspected the handcuffs and the ties and everything, and he put handcuffs on, on him himself. Yeah. 
Police did. Right. And uh, he got in this big box. Yes. With, uh, this girl, uh, uh, his sister, wherever it was, and uh, all of a sudden he just pulled the curtain down. There, the, he was untied. Uh, yeah. she, she came out. He came in untied, and she was all tied up. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I've never so you're that. talking. That's so, one of Les's big tricks: the uh, the steel trunk, uh, which has just been acquired by the Art Centre in Melbourne. Much to my delight. Yes, it was absolutely brilliant. Another one too, just mm. a while ago. He, uh, he he got all this crockery, broken crockery. Just all smashed up and everything, mm-hmm. and people came out and said, yes, that's fair digging and all that. Put on a tray, throw it up there and come down all back together again. That could happen. Hey, Max, was it a big night out? Oh, wasn't it ever? Yeah. Oh, it was. We was all dressed up to the nines, and we sat in the, you know, the, the old historic theatre Royal and Hobart, the oldest theatre in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 was, it was just great, and the audience responded magnificently to him. I remember that. They gave him a standing ovation. Do you think they preferred to see his... Um uh, the magic tricks, or did they like his personality the most? Well, I, I suppose the magic tricks, because uh, uh, he, he wasn't a big personality. Well, I, don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, he wasn't such a, uh, a stage personality. He was just a great a great deliverer of whatever he did. Mm. It was 1957, and uh, I was only young at the time. <laughs> And uh, I, I was overawed, and so was a lot of people. Yes, I've never forgotten him. Good on you. Thank you, Max. Wonderful. Was it, is this a time also, Kent, where it was a big night out to see a magician and that it was a big show and it wasn't like you imagine, I don't know, some, somebody doing um, magic tricks and so forth, but it was in a big event? Yes, it was certainly a, a full um, evening show with, with the big props that you would never see anywhere else except a, a full-blown theatre. So it wasn't just like the uh, the local magician who was coming in to entertain for a, a party or something like that. And Les was still doing uh, his big props uh, at that stage. And really, he continued to perform magic until right up into the late 1970s. Uh, he, he never gave it away. He was always the magician. How was it that Les actually got involved in magic to start with, Ken? Uh, he started as a, a young boy. He was living in uh, Wangaratta with his family and they were um, uh, breeding horses for the army. But uh, his father brought him back a book of magic from Melbourne and, of course, like any young boy, he instantly got uh, hooked on doing little bits of magic there. By the time he was 16, he had badgered his father into allowing him to move down to, to Melbourne and take up a job. And he got a job as a billiards marker in uh, the Vine Hotel in Richmond. And uh, everyone thought that the little tricks that he did were the the world's greatest magic but he bumped into a fellow by the name of Tom Selwyn who was a magician who said he was walking around the world with magic and a pack of cards and he was a nomadic um, uh, performer who eventually settled in Australia Tom Selwyn and Selwyn mentored Les to uh, really improve his act and taught him a lot more magic found him um, places to work and other people to do his apprenticeship with 
And so gradually Les started from doing little tricks with packs of cards and thimbles and started building and building. He worked, in fact, at uh, Luna Park where he would do six shows a night and that sort of experience is just invaluable because you're doing, you're repeating things over and over again so they become better and better as you go. And later, of course, he joined magic clubs and met a lot of other magicians along the way. But he would go and work anywhere um, just, for, just for the experience. What's a billiards marker? I think it's, um, it's actually a, um, a person who um, scores for uh, a billiards game. I may be wrong on that, but it's, it's somebody who assists with the people who are playing the billiards there. Oh. He actually met uh, Fred Lindrum for the people who know old billiards players. He was quite a famous trick shot artist. And they had to change the game of billiards because of him. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. The, um, so, so would he incorporate, so, because billiards is pretty boring, <laughs> yeah. so it, it was sort of like the marker and so forth would also have their own bits and pieces to actually make them more entertaining. I, I think it's just that being, you know, in a hotel, he was, he was a sociable fellow and uh, he would have just done his magic uh, as a part of the socialising there. That's one of the things about Levant, that everyone knew him and he knew everyone and he just loved to socialise with people. And so uh, he just got so well-known and loved right across the world. Maggie, hello. Hello. What did you want to tell us? I can remember seeing the great Levant in Tamora when I was quite young. My dad, we had an old friend who was a great magician and uh, we went along to see him, and now you talk about Sir Walter Lindrum. My father played a few exhibition matches with him. Wow. Oh, really? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, I'm just very interested here. He was, Levant was just a magic. It, it, you know, it was literally magic as far as we were concerned. He was yeah. excellent. Yeah. Maggie, what do you remember about his shows, his show? Well, I was, I was only young, but, I, well, because we were fascinated, you know, with anything like that. And a small country town, Tamora's still not a big country town in, in New South Wales, but I can just remember going along with my dad and my brother and sister to see him there. And uh, my father was very much taken with him too. He was yeah. a very impressive character because he very was so tall. So. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Now you sort of forget people exist until we're lifting down. And I thought, oh, goodness me. He was a great mm. man. Was absolutely, yes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And to come to a small country town was really something, you know. Les was good in that way because he had learned all his magic um, literally touring around the back blocks and uh, associating with uh, circus showmen and uh, showmen from the like the, the Royal Easter show and that sort of thing. There was no pretense about him. On stage, he was the great Levant, but off stage, he was everyone's mate and there was no snobbery at all about him. Uh, at one stage in the early 20s, he actually drove from Sydney across the Nullarbor Plains to do a show in Perth. Uh, and so... <laughs> You know, he certainly worked hard in the in the outer um, parts of Australia. Kent, when you take a look at that success and you were talk about how he started out with small tricks and then slowly built, is part of that success in 
how can I explain this? That to be able to do bigger and larger tricks, you have to become more successful and make more money than to be able to buy the bigger and larger tricks. Yes, not everyone's suited to performing the, the big illusions and it's it's a different sort of thing. Uh, Les was not um, skillful. Uh, particularly in the way that some manipulators might have been, you know, he, he wouldn't uh, produce cards out of the air or, you know, do a, an entire act with coins. But it was his presentation of the, the tricks that made it. And so he managed to acquire sort of uh, deceased estates of other magicians or he would buy illusions from other magicians who were selling off their props. And he had his eye on creating this big show. Uh, and when he did uh, do that, it was it was the full-blown thing. He had some very big and spectacular uh, illusions in that show. So as part of putting together an act like that, taking those props and making them your own and putting your own slant on the performance? Yes. Um, one of the big tricks that he did was called, um, well, at one stage, the death ray gun or called uh, shooting a woman through a plate of steel. And he had bought this prop from another uh, illusionist, the great Leon, and he reworked that into a theme of his own so that by the time he performed it, it was set as a um, onboard a ship with a naval setting and Les was dressed as an admiral with the full hat and um, uh, costume and everything. And they would pack a, a, an assistant actually from uh, somewhere in the town into a, a big metal cannon shell. They'd stuff her into the uh, cannon and put the cannon facing a big sheet of uh, plate metal and then they'd fire the cannon off and the girl literally would be fired out of the cannon through this plate of sheet metal, by magic, of course, yeah. and she would land on the other side of the plate of metal in a, in a big net. And uh, so that was, that was one of his big tricks that he certainly put his own stamp on. His wife was his assistant, yeah? His wife Gladys helped him in the earlier years and she was his assistant for many years until Esme grew old enough. She would have been uh, you know, in her teen years, I suppose, and then she took over and Gladys quite happily took a back seat because <laughs> she was uh, probably not uh, terribly keen on being a performer. She was just there as Les's wife. As you talk about the that trick or, or, or that performance of being shot out of a cannon and through mm, a piece of mm, steel mm. do you think that the assistants get enough credit for the for the for the the performances that are done no not at all and the same thing applies today um and this comes back again to the female magicians they deserve a lot of credit because if you knew how some of those tricks were done the contortions and the twisting that has to be done to get in and out of some of those boxes. Um, I've spoken to some of my friends who are now suffering what you would think of as uh, sports injuries because of all the jumping in and out and twisting. Um, it's it's a tough life being on stage. There's There's not all the glamour that you might think from out the front. So I wonder whether or not it's the magician that provides the performance in the show and it's the mm. assistant that does all the hard work. In Les's case, absolutely. <laughs> Les, as, as he um, grew into the role of the great Levant, 
um, he he became known that he would simply stroll on stage five minutes before the show started and all the rest of the family, especially Esme, had done all the setting up for him. His job was to walk out on stage and be the great Levant, not to be, you know, helping to shift boxes backstage. Um, and that's where Esme, of course, learned uh, so much about the, the ropes of performing. We're taking a look this morning as at the Great Levant and the Levant family and Esme Levant in magic around Australia and also overseas. Ken, was he well recognised not only within Australia but overseas as a good magician? Yes. Um, in England, his name is still very much um, high on the list of people's favourite magicians. Um, he was so well regarded over there because he was a big supporter of magic clubs and, and magic in general. Uh, he was given any number of testimonial dinners. When he came back to Australia, uh, of course, he spent many years here and, and jumped back and forwards between England and Australia. But he was quite definitely the biggest Australian export name, um, e even to this day, I would think. Uh, there were others who went overseas, but uh, the Great Levant was the big name. Kent, why was it important to, if you were in the magic business, to be supportive of smaller groups and clubs? Not everyone was. I think it was just Les's personality that he enjoyed uh, sharing. He was, uh, at heart, I suppose, an amateur magician who just loved what he used to do. Um, but he was also a, uh, a Mason, and of course uh, the Masonic uh, uh, membership meant that you had contacts all over the world. But it's very important that if you've got support from other magic groups, they will go and publicise your show for you and uh, help you in what, in what you need to get done. Uh, but I think for Les, it was just that he really did like people. I'm fascinated by the idea that there's the Australian Society of Magicians and that mm. he was the person that established that. What is that? There are several uh, magic clubs in Australia and the Australian Society of Magicians actually had, I think, up to about six different branches at one stage. Um, but it's a magic club which is for both amateur magicians and professionals and it's a social event and people get together and they will share their magic and help each other out. Uh, they still meet in, uh, in Melbourne as the Australian Society of Magicians and we have other groups like the International Brotherhood of Magicians which has several groups in Australia and in Sydney, the uh, Genies Magical Society as well, which I'm the secretary of. So what do those groups do? I'm just interested because if he was the founder of one in Australia, why was, it, was that important and significant at that time anyway in itself? Uh, particularly at that time, they were very active clubs and they would put on um, social shows all the time so you'd have a monthly magic show to be performed at a local theatre and they would help raise money for charities and uh, they, they were very active at that stage there were probably more professional magicians involved and again it was a networking exercise um, but also magicians are a bunch of magic nuts and they like to get together and exchange tricks. In fact, I was at a, a club meeting last night uh, watching people doing card tricks and enjoying 
seeing other people perform. When you take a look at that experience that both Esme and he'd, he had overseas, you mentioned that he came back to Australia, and as we've mm. heard from listeners to it extensively around Australia, yeah. what did Esme do after her success in Europe? Sadly, uh, Esme had been afflicted very badly by rheumatoid arthritis and uh, she battled through the pain for quite some time. You know, she would go on stage and there would be no sign that she had any problems, but she would be absolutely racked with pain after the, the show. She had many treatments and uh, it improved for a while, but eventually she was forced into retirement because uh, the, the uh, arthritis was too bad to let her continue. So she um, ended up working for the Ted James Theatrical Agency in Sydney and uh, sadly passed away in the 1980s. Did she do much performance in Australia or because we spoke about how significant was she was in Europe, she didn't get to do as her father didn't come back and tour here extensively? No, relatively little. And uh, uh, Esme's act was just just that. It was a cabaret act rather than a full evening show. She had no particular desire to follow in her father's footsteps by trying to do a full evening show because the time had simply passed by. Um, you couldn't make a living out of doing a full evening show anymore. And so she sensibly went where the money was and used her talents in the best way. Is it important that she's recognised as one of the women to pioneer Magic for Australia? Yes, I, I'm very pleased that at the moment, this year in particular, there's a lot of recognition happening and your own ABC's Cathy Pryor has just uh, written a, a big story and done a, a broadcast on the story of Esme Levant and two, two other female magicians from Australia. And in fact, if you do a, an internet search at the moment on the uh, name Esme Levant, you'll find both um, the ABC and Arts Centre broadcasts about those um, some excellent stuff online that you can go and look at. And in Sydney, there's a big exhibit at the State Library of New South Wales called House Tricks, which features uh, all of the uh, Levant uh, family there. So you can go up to the galleries and have a look at some, some excellent displays there on magic. Both very good. It's good to see Esme particularly being recognised because um, she probably has faded a little bit out of memory and it's it's time that she was recalled. That was, that was actually reading that um, article by Cathy that mm. um, sparked my interest because it was interesting seeing that and also the other two female magicians at that time. If you were to take a look at their lives and you would want to sell to people why they should be interested, what is it about their lives that is so significant? What interested me when I wrote Les's biography, because nobody else had, and I thought it was about time they deserved some recognition, when you recognise how much effort it took to traipse around the world, hauling loads of equipment and going from town to town, we think of the glamour of stage and, you know, you see the beautiful performers up on the stage, but you don't recognise the sheer hard work and effort that goes into making a lifetime in any sort of theatrical pursuit and it's remarkable just to see what people can achieve by being adventurous and determined and that's what it took for all of these performers 
they had to knuckle down and do a lot of hard work to present the magic for the audiences who just sat back and enjoyed. The And their role as mentors for magicians of the future, was that important? Yes. Um, back in Sydney particularly, uh, Les is still well uh, loved for the help that he gave to all the magicians. Uh, he would find people jobs, he would give them um, mentorship from his own experience and he was always there to be supportive and give practical uh, criticism where it was needed. Um, so his his name is still very well regarded now. He didn't like spiritualists much, did he? No, a lot of magicians don't because they get their nose out of joint. That um, some of the you know the early magician, uh, the early spiritualists, I should say, were doing what are essentially magic tricks to fool um, people into believing that spirits or ghosts exist, and people. Magicians get upset that uh, their art could be twisted into doing things that are actually deceiving people for money or other gain, and that's still the case today. That uh, you know the, the fake psychics are misusing our art uh, for the wrong purposes. Oh, and so these are the the mind reading um, and the connection to the spirit world that magicians used. Um, and they just felt yeah. that it wasn't right to use it, uh, to recognise that it is a trick and a magic trick. Yes, that's right. In the, the very early days, the, you know, the, the Davenport brothers would get themselves tied up and locked in a cabinet, and then uh, bells and tambourines would fly out and musical instruments would play. Um, but they were magicians pretending to be in touch with the spirits, and they weren't. And uh, magicians just said it's only fair that they should acknowledge that they're entertainers. Should we also be, and we might actually get you to come back on another time, just to take a look at mm, the history sure. of magic in Australia. And yep. how far back does it go within Australia, the history of magic and the performance? My research on my website uh, has managed to get back as far as 1836, and I know of at least three of the early magicians who performed in Australia and lived in Australia who came out here as convicts. So it's pretty amazing that barely 50 years after the founding of the, the, the European colonisation of Australia uh, that there were professional magicians working around the traps here. And thus developing into a huge uh, industry within Australia over that period of time. Yes, yes, indeed. I've uh, documented probably 60 or 70 magicians that haven't yet been mentioned by any other historian, and I've got probably another 70 still to document yet. So there were plenty of performers running around the, the country. You've got your work cut out for you, haven't you? I, I have. I'll be dead by the time this job's finished, yeah. <laughs> it's been great talking to you this morning uh, about the family. Kent Blackmore is a Jeez. magic historian and the author of Levant, His Life, No Illusions. And we will get him to come back and talk more about magic and the history of magic within Australia, which sounds like it's a, a rich story within itself. This is Overnights on ABC Radio with Trevor Chappell.